Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Hey, my friends, welcome back to a very exciting episode of your story box. Today, my friends, I'm delighted to welcome a multi-hypernate on the story box. Her name is Anna Akana. Now, for those of you that don't know who she is, she's an actor, director, writer, producer, comedian, musician, content creator, YouTuber, author, and so much more. In 2017, Anna was named by The Hollywood Reporter, one of the most prestigious uh, magazines and Uh, news outlets out there as one of the 15 new digital disruptors, 15 rising crossover stars. Since then, Anna executive produced and starred in the YouTube Red miniseries, Youth and Consequences. She released her debut album, Casualty, and was featured in Netflix, Let It Snow, ABC's A Million Little Things, and Comedy Central's Corporate. Anna was recently... Uh, starred in Go Back to China, which premiered at South by Southwest in 2019 before being released in March of 2020. And Anna also starred in the highly anticipated series and it's an amazing show if you can find it nowadays. It's called Jupiter's Legacy. So go and check that out. Great, great show. It appears to many of the issues and conditions that are going on in our world currently today. But Anna has over 2.8 million very engaged subscribers on her own YouTube channel, which has generated more than 360 million views, believe it or not. She has also used her platform to shed light, whether very seriously and or with a comedic tone on so many key topics and issues. Those include the importance of mental health, the unfortunate, very timely issues of racial discrimination, issues surrounding bullying, gender equality, sexuality, and the absolute necessity to have uh, non-white female voices to contribute to the dialogue. She is always using her voice to spotlight these these issues through a variety of mediums. And Anna and I had a great conversation. I thought it was great. And nonetheless, uh, loves speaking about her her story, the things that she has had to go through. There's a pretty hard-hitting 
uh, story in here that I do have to pre-warn you uh, is to do with some form of suicide. So if it does trigger some of you, then please just be aware of that uh, before you continue on. But don't let that stop you from listening. It's a powerful reminder of why we need to take care of our mental health and check in for our friends and family members as well. So with that being said, my friends, if you do get something from this one, please share it around to your friends and family that everyone know about this one. If you are a fan of Anna, even better, go and support her work uh, even more by sharing this one around. You can also uh, watch the full video now over on YouTube. All links are in the show notes below. And don't forget before you leave to subscribe and leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box and spotlight a couple of very major issues as we listen, learn from the incredible story of none other than Anna Akana. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy. It's so great to have you here. I was just saying before, I have my hands in my pockets because it's actually a freezing cold room. <laughs> so if I start shivering during the interview, I apologize in advance, but so good to have you here. The very first question that I want to ask you to sort of set everything up uh, that I, I kind of ask all my guests at the start anyway, but it's a deep question, but what does success look like for you? Oh man, I, I guess... Success right now, I think the, the goalpost keeps moving with success, which is always the hard thing. Once you conquer one milestone in your life, you just push whatever your definition of success is down the road. Um, but I would say right now, success to me is getting to work on a bunch of projects that I not only believe in, but that make a positive impact in the world and communicate the values that I have to different audiences and helps educate, humanize, um, and create empathy and compassion within the people who watch it. Mm. When was the moment for you that you sort of realized that success was, uh, so to speak, moving the goalpost? Has it been this gradual thing over time in your life or was there more like a catalyst moment somewhere? Yeah, probably. I don't know. I grew up with an Asian father who was very studious. So I guess it's just been modeled to me my whole life. Um, but no, he really taught me that success was measured in growth and measured by, you know, how much you push yourself. Like someone else could define you as successful, but deep down, you know, whether or not that success was, was earned, was worked for, if you found it in, or if you really put your all into something. Mm. How did you, you mentioned that you grew up with an Asian father. Um, mm. What was it like growing up in that sort of household? Like, did you have any sort of restrictions on what you wanted to be when you grew up? Was it sort of like you had to take this specific path at all? Yeah, my dad's uh, in the American military. So his father was also in the American military and they were both uh, the oldest children. So he wanted to create a tradition and continue a tradition of the oldest child enrolling and becoming a military officer. Mm -hmm. So for the first, I would say 19 years of my life, I was very much on track to, to join the Marine Corps. I would do like ROTC, which is a uh, before and after school program for kids who wanted to go on the military track. I would be enrolled in summer camps specifically 
basically that would help you with basic training. Um, and I was just fully ready to become a doctor <laughs> in that, in that sector of my life. Cause that's what I was told I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but deep down, I always wanted to be an actor. I always wanted to be a performer and a writer. Um, but that just seemed impossible, especially cause growing up, you know, I can count on one hand, how many Asian people I ever saw, um, in movies or on TV. And it wasn't really till I saw Margaret Cho perform stand up that I recognized, Oh, this is someone who looks like me being an entertainer, perhaps, I could do that too, if she's doing it. Mm. So how did having, having said all that, how did that really affect your, your sense of identity and sense of worth growing up? Um, I mean, I definitely had a low sense of self-worth in terms of, you know, my racial identity because I'm mixed. So, uh, growing up, you know, we moved every two or three years because my dad's job in the military forced us to to change locations a lot. And in Japan or Korea or the Philippines, I was never Asian enough. I was distinctly American. And then, you know, I grew up in the South where I'm usually the only Asian family on a military base. So I would say my experience growing up was very bifurcated by not feeling enough in in either identity or either culture, Mm. Um, which has taken me years of therapy to slowly undo. (laughs) But now I would say that's a, it's a huge strength of mine to be so bicultural and associate with so many identities and having grown up all over the world, um, I feel, I feel like that really helped me as an artist because I'm, I'm so able to relate and identify with different, different people and different cultures. Mm. You take it in your stride now. It's much better. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Only took me 30 years, but I am. (laughs) Well, it does, it doesn't happen overnight, right? Like it takes a, a little bit of time and it's not, it's not a bad thing at all, but actually getting to the place where you can finally realize, hey, I know, I know my worth. I'm proud of it now, and and not being sort of stuck in that that negative state of not knowing who you are. Um, I think it's it's a valuable thing to actually have as part of your story. So for you, Anna, how did you break free from okay going from being conditioned basically to be in the army, so to speak, to, okay, I want to follow my dreams, my passions, my ambitions of becoming an actor. Um, well, I, I lost my little sister to suicide in 2007 when I was 17. And that very radically altered what I thought of life. And up until that point, I think, you know, when we're, when we're young, we do have this idea that maybe we're, we're invincible and we're never going to really die, even though you, you understand the concept of death. It doesn't quite resonate. And so having experienced that so young, I was really forced to figure out what I wanted my life to be. And I didn't want to follow in my father's footsteps. I did not enjoy science. I did not want to, you know, look at blood and operate and go into war. And even though I have traits in myself that my father cultivated, like discipline and hard work and structure that would lend itself to that kind of career. Ultimately, I felt I felt more free and more fulfilled when I was able to, to self-express creatively. Mm. And so it was, it was really her death that made me um, take charge of my own life and, and forge my own path. So I wasn't, I was only, I was going to ask you about your sister's death later on in the conversation, but <laughs> we're, going, we're going deep straight away. I like it. So yeah. what was going through that moment that you found out that your sister had committed suicide? What was going through your mind? Um, I mean, well, I actually knew she was 
dead uh, prior to, to actually getting the call. Um, I was like hanging out at a park somewhere and I just kind of knew. And I was with someone at the time and I was like, we need to go home. We need to go home. I need to go home. There's something, there's something really wrong. Um, and so I, I got up and I started running to the car and that's when I got the call uh, from my brother that my sister had committed suicide. At the time we thought maybe there was a chance she would be revived. Uh, she was like loaded into an ambulance and taken to the hospital. Um, but unfortunately they said she'd been, she'd, she'd been uh, brain dead too long to possibly resuscitate her. Um, and so, I mean, it is kind of, it, it feels like the way they portray it in the movies where everything is surreal. You're sort of disconnected from reality. Things are blurry and moving by. Like I remember at the funeral, I kept thinking like, this has got to be a prank. Like mm. at any moment, there's got to be a bunch of cameras that pop out and, and this is a giant prank on us all. Um, and I, I think it took me like a good two or three years to really process that it was real, that that was my reality. Um, Cause it just didn't seem possible that she was 13 at the time. So it seemed impossible that someone so young could actually be gone when I'd, when I'd known them every single day of their entire life. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it was, it was really bad for like a long time. I, I like did drugs by myself. I, uh, I ended up not going to college or enrolling at all. Um, I worked a dead end job at a pizza place and basically like smoked weed every day for a good two years. Um, but ultimately it was, it was kind of seeing Margaret perform and realizing, Oh, I have to live for both of us now. Like her entire life was taken away as a young adult. And, and I feel responsible to live as authentically and fully as I can, because that's the only way I know how to honor this person. Mm, that's a powerful story. Like, was she struggling with a lot of mental illnesses and did you, did you feel like that you could have potentially saved her? Oh man, I think I could have saved her every day of my life. I, I was the last person to talk to her and we got into a huge fight. So the last thing I ever said to her was, I hate you. And before I left to the park, I was looking at her closed door and I was like, maybe I should go talk to her. But ultimately I was like, whatever, she'll be fine. I'll come back later and we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, and I, I, I like, you know, every single day I'm, I'm like, fuck, if I had actually gone in and, and said something, maybe I would have caught her. Maybe I could have changed her mind. Um, but unfortunately, you know, I, I didn't, and this is my reality now. Mm. Uh, don't remember your first question. I'm sorry. That's all right. Cause it kind of leads me to another question I have for you. Like talking about forgiveness and like having that as your last thing that you said to someone, which is a pretty powerful thing to say, and you don't get to take that back or apologize. What have you learned about forgiveness through this whole entire journey that you've been on? I mean, I would say if she exists somewhere, which I think she exists somewhere, you know, her energy exists somewhere. I think she knows I didn't mean it. Mm -hmm. I think things we say in anger, most of the time, you know, even if you're on the receiving end, you know, that's not real. Yeah. Um, I've learned to forgive myself over the course of, I mean, what was, it's been 13, 14 years now, um, through a lot of therapy, a, a lot of journaling. I've gone on a lot of like spiritual ceremonial journeys to like Vipassana retreats. I'm going to an ayahuasca retreat this weekend. It's a wound that you keep tending to. I think something that deep and that primal is something that is just now a part of who I am and a part of my identity. And it's given me a lot of problems. I'm very afraid to, you know, get into a fight with someone and leave it 
because I'm like, what if they go off and kill themselves? So I, I'm someone where if I'm in, in a rupture with another person, I'm like, well, we have to resolve this now. I can't leave. And so we figure this out, even though, you know, in normal everyday conflict, sometimes you need a timeout. Sometimes we need space from each other to, to get our heads clear. It worries me a lot that that aspect of repairing a conflict is very, very difficult for me to do. Even though shoulders up, I'm aware they're fine. They're not going to go off and do this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the hardest, the hardest part for me has been forgiving, you know, myself. Like I, it's easy to forgive everyone else. It's easy to forgive her. You know, she was 13. She was in the throes of puberty. She was, um, she was actually, uh, expelled from school for bringing an airsoft gun. Cause she wanted to defend herself against a bunch of bullies who had threatened to beat her up. And she was the person who got expelled instead of the, the, the group of boys who had threatened to harm her. And so it, it's sometimes really hard and, and, like fucks with your brain where you're like, was she struggling with depression or mental illness? Or is this just a really impulsive decision for a young prepubescent girl? Um, and I'll, I don't think I'll ever know. And so reconciling that and forgiving everyone involved and knowing that this was just a horrible thing that happened. Oh, my cat just stepped on my keyboard. Uh, yeah. This is just a horrible thing that happened that uh, where no one is to blame I can, I can honestly say that it's taken me, you know, even now I'm still, I'm still learning that, that lesson. It's a process, right? It's a, it's a daily occurrence that you sort of wake up and face the, the battle of it, face the realization of it. It's trauma, like trauma never goes away. It's sort of kind of, if you allow it to, it festers, but if you wake up and you sort of say, Hey, today is not going to take control of me today. I'm going to move forward in my life and you go on different journeys, different every single day, I, I believe. And I like how you mentioned that you, you, you do uh, a lot of therapy and you're going on a spiritual retreat as well. That all helps. So it, it seems like you're a much better person because of it, if I can say that. Um, yeah. And I'm sure she would be proud, to be honest with you. I I'm sure she'd be really proud. Thank um, you. So steering away from the sort of hard stuff, I want to get into the more lighthearted <laughs> things because – I do know that you are a very funny individual. Like if you go and see your YouTube videos, I was watching a couple of them. And even in Jupiter's Legacy, you sort of had that comedic, even though you were a boss in it, you had a comedic, sarcastic approach <laughs> to it. So my my first question to you would be, in terms of acting, what is your creative process like? When you get a script or when you get a character, what sort of process do you run through every single day or the moment you do get a script? Um, I would say it's sort of cliche, but I go by the Michael Sarah method where you just add yourself to every character. You know, I, I find that in most of the roles I book, it's because I'm, I'm being some extension of myself. Mm. Um, and I really love script breakdown. I have excellent coaches. Michael Adams and Jonathan Slavin have been my my teachers and my mentors for like seven years. Um, and they're really good about finding the range in a, in a scene and, and finding a roller coaster in a scene. But almost everything I book is, is kind of what Raikou is, is, you know, that snarky, sardonic, sort of guarded, shielded with like sharp humor kind of character. And I mean, I, it's weird because I never think of myself that way. I, I feel like I'm a Labrador retriever and most of the characters I play are sort of like black cats. Um, <laughs> but but it, it's it's quite nice. I love being on set. Being on set, I think is my favorite 
my favorite environment of all time. It feels like a summer camp. You get really close to these people for like a good, like five to six weeks. And then you all disperse and you might see them again in a couple of years, but you all had this like intense bonding experience where you're all working towards one common goal. It's always different. Um, you know, you measure how good a set is by the food. And I, I feel like it's just such a, it's such a joy and such an honor to, to get to do something that I, I never thought was possible. Mm. Do you have a, a favorite day on set that sort of like you felt, <laughs> oh, this is the best ever. I know every day is like, kind of like that, but was there a particular day? I think with Jupiter's legacy, um, I had to go on, on set to do like a makeup test. So I was, you know, driven from my hotel to set where my makeup artist would, would give looks, uh, on, or put like different makeup looks on my face and then drive me out to the director to approve it prior to me shooting. Um, and it was the day they were filming, um, everyone washing ashore from the boat onto the Island in that, in that later episode. And I remember being like shepherded around in like this little golf cart. And I was just like, Oh my God, it was the most, it was the biggest set I'd ever been on. There were these like gorgeous mountains and plains and the ocean was right there. And there were so many people and so many huge trucks. And it was, you know, I think other than Ant-Man, the, the biggest set I'd been on. And when you see that kind of like money behind, um, a project, it's very like, awe-inspiring and you can't believe that there's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people working on this one thing you know that ends up maybe being seven eight hours total and I it was also very very cold and like windy and so like the environment was so beautiful so I just remember going and everyone had like gruelingly been filming for four months so I just came on set like hey guys we're in the last episodes oh my god ah, and so much yeah, they were all so tired yeah <laughs> you're all fresh and, and full of energy they're like oh still struggling let's uh, <laughs> that sort of thing super suit for freaking months we're tired <laughs> <laughs> so tell me the story of like that moment for you when you real when you found out that you're going to be playing Raikou in Jupiter's Legacy. How did that happen? I'm very lucky. I love I love graphic novels and comic books, and I love Mark Millar, but I never read Jupiter's Legacy. And I think if I had read it beforehand, I would have fucked up my audition because I would have been too. <laughs> So luckily when I got the audition, it was a self tape, which means instead of going into a casting office, you kind of put yourself on tape. And this was in 2019. So pre pandemic. And I'm terrible at self tapes because even though I've done YouTube for forever, I don't like watching myself act, you know, and then having to choose a take and submit it. I hate it. Um, and so I was like, Oh, I don't care. Uh, whatever. I'll just be funny in this and send it in. And Stephen S. Denight, who did Daredevil and was our original showrunner, he really liked the sort of humor and sardonicness that I brought to Raikou, who on paper is kind of, you know, a little flat sometimes. Um, and so Netflix really liked my read, but they wanted to see that I could be less funny. They were like, can she do it again, but less funny? Can she be more serious? We want to see her be like a badass. So um, I, I, w I ended up going into a casting office and redoing it a little bit more serious. Uh, and then when I found out I got the role, I was like, oh, great. I'll buy these comic books. So I'll take a look at what it is. And I don't know if you've read the graphic novels. No. But OK, there's an amazing twist in the graphic novels that is like Shakespearean and Game of Thronesy. And I remember like screaming as I was reading them. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I get to be a part of this. Thank God I'm only reading this now. I was so excited. Um, so for me, it, it, the excitement all came way after I, ha I had booked the, the thing and then realized the scope of what I was a part of. Is that twist in the comics the same as the big twist in the, in the show? 
sort of. We're we're getting to the twist. Ah, okay. Because that that shocked me when I when I was like, I was like, damn, no. <laughs> I don't know if we can spoil it for people. Like they gotta yeah. they gotta watch the show. But trust me, it is an amazing, amazing scene. Like you just don't you don't expect it. Um, now I, I'm curious about like being in the suit for the first time. Like, were you nervous at all? No, I I love I love dress up. So I was very <laughs> excited. Uh, I think the, it's funny though the, the wardrobe team is first of all like they're amazing. I, every suit like they were designing suits for characters that were like immediately killed, like characters in one scene, and then like that guy on the hilltop gets like smashed immediately. Um, so I felt so bad for them because they had so much work cut out for them. But we had to do, I think, like four different iterations of Raikou's costume because they were using these like pleather pants that would come all the way up to here and then have straps. And I, I couldn't bend in them. And I was like, you guys, like my stunt double is going to have to do kicks and like swirl around. Like I can't lift my leg. So we had to ultimately create like chaps and like just all this like strappy compartment stuff. But it's it was gorgeous and the attention to detail that Liz put into it was just beautiful. I was so excited every time I got to be in that suit. Did you want to do your own stunts? I did. I did. I trained um for all the wide shots, of course, they use Haruka because she's like a legit swordswoman from Japan. Um, but I I basically trained for like three weeks for the opening fight scene. Uh, and then tore my shoulder, of course, the day of filming. Um, so when you see me film, like I can't lift my right arm above like shoulder uh-huh. height, uh, but they, they were clever about cutting around it. <laughs> Very nice. So, so, um, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be fun. So that whole training process, the grueling nature of it, have you done anything like that before? Oh, Wow. I don't think I have. No, none of my roles have required me to, to do that. I mean, I'm a very active person on my own. Like I, I used to do a lot of uh, aerial arts. So like silks, trapeze. Um, and my father also put me in like Kempo. So I, I'm very trained in that regard, but no, I've never had the opportunity to like actually train like a superhero for a TV show. Till so now. If, you, if you were given the opportunity to do like a, a full feature film where you could do your own stunts that so we could be a total badass like in Jupiter's legacy. Do you think you'd take it without oh, the stunts? That's the dream. I love, I like, I want to be a Marvel superhero so bad. Um, I, I think like that kind of stuff is just, it's the funnest to do. Mm. You were, were you a part of Ant-Man? I was, but I played a reporter, so I didn't have any powers. Oh, you should have just like, you know, <laughs> being a, like a superhero reporter or something like that. I wish. Just make the director, the director, like, look, what's she doing? <laughs> One of those ones. Um, okay. So I want to sort of touch on um, the, the film or the show was received incredibly well by literally everyone. I remember I binge watched, I was given access to, Jupiter's Legacy, the first two episodes, because I, I was able to speak to Leslie Vib. And I was like, I want to see the rest. Come on. So when it, when it came out, I binge watched it. Do you have, like, you don't have to say, oh, you can be proud here and say, oh, my episodes are my favorite. But do you have sort of a favorite episode that you, that you love watching? I love the hilltop fight. Like, mm. 
when I mean I can I, I assume I can do some spoilers here, but in the first episode in that giant hilltop fight when Blackstar is about to go nuclear and just like his chest laser beam shoots out and he decapitates one hero and scorches another. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, I really love like rated R uh, superhero stuff, but something about Jupiter's Legacy that I really liked was the violence was never gratuitously violent for the sake of it. It always felt like it had gravity. So when that happened, it felt like it stood out as such an extreme moment because they're not doing that the entire time. Um, so that scene, I thought, really set the tone between you know, the generational conflict of Sheldon and his son, Brandon, and the difference of how they really view taking a life. Mm, I love the the actual lessons that and the the messages throughout the entire show. I think it's powerful. Like you, it's kind of similar. And I was speaking with Leslie about this as well. It's kind of similar to what we're going through today. Like yeah. injustices, should you do something that you don't believe in? Wrestling with that, like the change that is involved with, I guess, society. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a very powerful, hard hitting, and a much needed. Uh, show uh, today. Um, do you feel like that at the moment in, in, in your life as being an actor, do you feel like anything is missing at all? Oh man, anything is missing. I would, I mean, most of the things that I feel like are missing, I think are systemic, um, you know, sort of global corruption and genocide and the fact that there are kids starving every day and the <laughs> hate crimes happening in, in my country. Most of the things that I worry about are, am, am I doing enough as like a human being to make the world a better place? Because I think in, in my in my industry in particular and in my profession, there's like almost an obsession with upward mobility and superficiality. And it's very easy to, I think, get sucked into vanity and the glamour of it all. Um, and so Sort of, you know, I'm not saving anyone's life. I'm not curing cancer. And I always want to be mindful that even though I love what I do and I get a lot of satisfaction out of it, I still have a responsibility as a person to help other people and leave this world, hopefully, you know, in a better shape for the next generation. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of like my career, like I, I love working. I love I love what I do. And I feel really grateful that I, that I'm busy and, and that 10 years of really grinding and hustling has started to really feel like it's paying off and I'm working regularly. Um, so in that respect, I'm, I'm really happy. Was there ever a moment when you were grinding away, trying to be an actor that you felt like you wouldn't make it or quote make it? I no, honestly, I, I've only ever had doubts the older I get when I was, when I was young, I fully believed like, Oh, if I just put the work in, like I'll, I'll get results because that's also how I was raised. Um, and the mentality that my, my father really imparted, he's like, if you work harder than anyone else, uh, you know, you'll get what you want. And he's not wrong. Like there's a lot of flaky people in Los Angeles and a lot of people who are in it for the wrong reasons and don't do the work. And, um, I've never been afraid of the work and I've loved the work. I've loved the process. So I guess I was, I was, I had the arrogance of youth to believe I'd make it. <laughs> So why did the doubt sort of creep in later in life? What happened there? Honestly, a lot of, a lot of uh, racism. I, I, because I grew up, you know, in Japan and Hawaii later in my life, uh, I didn't really experience racism until I moved back to California. Cause even though I was a, a kid in the South, you know, I was too stupid to really realize I was different in Asian when I was a child. <laughs> um, and then there were just certain 
times where I would, I would call my manager and, you know, roles would, I, roles I booked would suddenly be taken away. And then I'd be like offered the best friend role instead, or certain things happened where I was just like, is this, is this because I'm Asian? Mm. And, um, to his credit, he was like, honestly, I cannot think of another reason why this would, would happen. Um, and so for the first time in my life, I was really confronted with like a glass ceiling, not just as a woman, but now like also with my race. Uh, and, and I have had executives even tell me, you know, to my face, oh, well, an Asian lead is a little bit risky for something like this. Um, and until we had like fresh off the boat and crazy rich Asians and Minari and we were getting better, but it, it almost still feels like a lot of those stories, like you can't put another race because it's an Asian specific story versus just like, it's a story that happens to feature a person who's not white. Mm-hmm. Um, so that doubt is slowly kind of going away because I feel like I make my own stuff. I make my own opportunities. I write my own roles. Um, but for a while there, when I wasn't writing as much or creating YouTube content, it felt very powerless. Mm. I think society, we are getting there, uh, but it's a very slow process. Like with anything, like I was always brought up with respect. Anyone doesn't matter. Color, creed, race, doesn't matter. Just yeah. treat people like people. And I think the way society has, yeah, like I, like I was saying, it has gotten a, a bit better, but I'm sure we, there's so much more that we can do to better just make people equal. Um, yeah. So I have a few minutes a few minutes left with you. So I wanted to ask you two final questions, if that's okay. Absolutely. Uh, what do you love the most about stories? Ooh, I think the thing I love most about stories is that there's this great tweet that I read a while ago that was like, do you realize that books are just you staring at a dead tree and hallucinating? And I think it's the same with, with film and TV. Like these are people who don't exist. This all came out of someone's brain and you're able to laugh or cry or feel something. And if that's not magic, then I don't know what the fuck magic is. You know, I I love the emotional impact that story can have and how it can shape your beliefs. Um, I I just think that's incredible and wild. Mm. This is my final question for you. It's my all-time favorite question I ask everyone at the end. It's a hypothetical one. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together your own film of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done, don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument, like you said before, magic. And they've been able to get it all and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Wow. Um, I would hope to see all of my kitties. Um, I want to see just every moment my kitties have ever had and relive that. I would hope to see uh, all the stupid and absurd adventures I've had with my best friend. Um, man, and I, I guess I would really love to see like, just how stupid I, you know, like, you know, you ever get like really depressed and stuff and you're like, man, I wasted so much time being upset <laughs> about this thing that doesn't matter, you know? Like, I, I feel like we're, we're all struggling all the time with like, you know, I would tell with the death of my sister and life is beautiful and mortality. And then I like in the next day, I'm like screaming at my printer because it doesn't work. Like just how adaptable and silly we are. And even those moments, I think I'd like to look at them and just laugh at how much I obsessed over waiting for someone to text me back or something. 
<laughs> I, I love it all. Um, Anna, where can people find you, connect with you, learn more about what you're doing um, and, and things like that? Um, I'm Anna Kana on everything. Two N's in Anna and then A-K-A-N-A. I'm 33% A's and N's in case. <laughs> I'll make sure that's all in the show notes below. But Anna, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed this. Wish I had more time, but appreciate you and everything that you're doing in the world. Keep going. Uh, and thank you for coming on the Storybox podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jay. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.